0: Hey, what's up? This is Dan Blewett, and we are back here with another episode of Dear Baseball Gods. This week, I do not have a guest. I have another one I'm actually recording with tomorrow. I'll have another one after that. So I've been enjoying the guests, but this week we are going a little bit off script because I want to talk about not really just so much the book, but I want to talk about the point of this podcast, uh, the point of the last 22 years of my life, uh, all that sort of stuff that is what's gone into this final product within these covers so if you don't know Dear Baseball Gods the podcast was started back I guess we're closing on two years and the original intent was to share stories from my career that might be impactful to someone over time it sort of evolved so the podcast uh, initially was a lot of uh, stories from me I had a lot of guests from teammates sharing their story over time it evolved into more monologues talking about pitching specific topics. So things you might want to learn as a parent or or player, as coach, all that sort of stuff, you know, more instructional how to kind of things. And then recently I got back into doing guests. I really enjoyed it. Um, And I've also just realized over time how challenging it is just to have monologues so regularly where I have legitimate content to put out. Uh, of the 45-minute to 60-minute, you know, like the podcast sort of length. Obviously, a podcast can be any sort of duration we want. Um, I know, for example, there's a guy, Kyle Nelson, who organizes the Illinois High School Baseball Coaches Association. He does Cornerstone Coaching Academy, which is 10 to 12 minutes. It's little quick snippets for coaches of things that he does that he thinks could be valuable for someone else, like tips and little current topics in in baseball coaching. So, obviously, there's no wrong way to do it, and – it can all be your thing. I have really enjoyed the podcast called uh, it's Mike Rose podcast called the way I heard it. And he writes these stories that end up being six to eight minutes plus a little bit of advertising time uh, before, but they're 12 minute episodes and that's kind of that. So anyway uh, this has evolved over time, but originally the point was to share a lot of the things that I learned along the way in more of like a story form. Now, that again has evolved and that's sort of the reason I have my vlog now. So as I've looked at different forms of content and ways I can connect with people and reach people, one of the big demographics that I want to reach are kids, kids who are going to go through the things that I went through in their own way. And so sure, podcasting is a great format. I think it's really more of like the parent format, but to reach the kids on YouTube and on Instagram, A shorter form video based thing was, I think my, um, my solution to a high school, middle school demographic and of course college as well. So over time, the stories that I wrote in my book, uh, I'm like, Hmm, do I want to translate these into podcast land or do I want to translate them into video form? And as I've gotten my feet wet in video form. So if you're on my email list, you hear from me once a week, sometimes twice. I share my new vlogs. We're already on to episode three. Will come out next week, and I've been explaining a little bit about why I'm doing this vlog. And as I jumped into it and bought more camera equipment, bought more uh, of the audio and technical devices that I need to do it well. You can see here this is a brand new mic that probably sounds significantly better. So if you're listening uh, via the podcast, not via YouTube, of course the audio is the same on both uh, both channels, but. If you're listening only through the audio version, you'll hear probably that my voice sounds a good amount better than it used to. Uh, and that's because I have this mic that costs $400 instead of, uh, $99. So not that there's anything wrong. I think my podcasts have sound good. Uh, in the past we have decent mics, but this is like a next level mic. And the reason I actually bought this mic is because I'll be doing the audiobook version of my book fairly soon. So my goal is, again, to put up the the highest quality piece of content within my power and my budget and all that other stuff so that it can, again, reach more people. Because I know that if something is easy to listen to as opposed to harsh, if it's easy to watch as opposed to uh, low quality, you know, more people are going to give it a chance. And then hopefully it connects with them in the way that I that I want it to. So as I've gone through all these different mediums, I've sort of started to put them in their own compartmentalized place where the podcast is evolving into a place where other people can share their long form stories. So I have a guest tomorrow, uh, Jimmy Gonzalez, who is the coach of the South Bend Silverhawks. That's a Cubs single a affiliate. So he's going to come on the show. He'll be the week after this uh, one airs. And so it's great to hear other people's perspective and journey. I'm only my own uh, version of a coach, right? I'm sort of a low energy guy. I'm not a huge rah, rah, rah kind of guy. And it's great to just hear different messages from different people. You might hear, the same thing that i say from a different person and it connects with you better uh just like parents who've played high level baseball bring their kids to my academy simply sometimes because they say you know my son or my daughter tunes me out um, even though they definitely know what they talked about and they have a lot of knowledge and wisdom to share with their own kids it just depends on the message and the format and all that stuff so we're very aware of that i'm very aware of that and so the packaging is important so hearing it from other people is critical and i've actually really enjoyed meeting new people recently uh, via the podcast there's a lot of great minds out there i've been learning a lot so it's it's i think finally taken its niche but this week i wanted to give a gap and kind of talk about some of the things that i'm doing because a lot's changing and now that the book is getting close to coming out i'm besides really excited about it um i think it's all going to start to mesh together well in the future where if you're interested in what i do and you're interested in learning about the journey that is high-level sports, you know that that climb up the mountain. That's an analogy I use over and over in my book. It's uh, what you're in store for because it's it can be an amazing experience. It can be a very heartbreaking experience. And if you listen to some of my older episodes, like episode 13, where I explain the worst day of my career, uh, which is also one of the worst days of my life, um, you know you know that. It's never going to be easy, and it's often how we reframe bad situations and how we react to them and respond to them that makes them, you know, learning experiences or just flat-out defeats. So one of these topics uh, I'm I'm working on for Episode 5 of my vlog, and that is uh, the peanut butter and jelly. So when we look at things, and this is one of the things I'm going to be doing in my vlog, is taking the everyday items that mean something to me and explaining the story that's behind them. So if you look at anything in your life, uh, the the foods that you love, like the comfort foods that really just make you feel like warm and fuzzy, like when you were a kid because maybe your mom made them or whatever, uh, or the just the 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 paintings on your wall, the reasons that we connect with certain objects and and experiences and events, they're very personal and they're always attached to a, an emotional story. So that's why I think story is so powerful. When I do speak, and I'm going to start getting back into speaking more. Uh, as soon as this book is done, um, establishing a, an emotional connection with someone is critical and sharing a personal story that allows yourself to kind of put your, you know, be a little vulnerable is a really big part of the process. And so I, as I look around as, and as I've written this book, there's so many things that remind me of my journey, Something, so many things that were a little piece of it. And I'll give you an example peanut butter and jelly, which is going to be episode five of the You're My Boy Blue blog. vlog. Uh, peanut butter and jelly, when I think of it, I immediately get taken back to 2010, when I was in my rookie season with Normal, when I was making $600 a month, which was 255.10 per paycheck after taxes. And I just think back to the clubhouse, how every day you walk in at 2.30, you know, you have to be on, on the field at 3.30 usually. You walk in, ready to get your early work in, get your uniform, get settled, all that stuff. And there's a table and there's a big loaf of bread, two, typically two of, of wheat bread and a loaf of white bread. There's a big jar, like an industrial sized jar of jelly, typically grape. I mean, almost without exception, grape, and then a big drum of peanut butter. And in the frontier league, which was the league that I played 2010 in my rookie season, and then 2012 with Evansville, the year I blew my elbow out a second time in that league you obviously don't make any money right 600 to 1200 i believe is still the max and you pay a dollar a day in clubhouse dues so clubhouse dues you pay to the clubby and that basically gives him money to wash your uniform to prepare food in the clubhouse which sometimes is only pretty much pb and j and in general just keep your clubhouse tidy he's the clubhouse attendant and the dues you pay him are basically his salary he's paid meagerly by the team if at all and it's a he relies on your dues. But in the Frontier League, the dues are only a dollar a day. In every other league, they're higher than that. In the Atlantic League, where I played my final three season, it was $7 a day. So, significant bump up in fees. You know, that's $20 for every homestand, plus you want to tip them if they do a decent job. Um, but you also expect a little more from it. So, $7 a day uh, gets you a little better post-game spread of food. It gives you a little better pre-game food. So there'll be more granola bars and ramen, you know, a cup of noodles and, and some more fresh fruit and all that sort of stuff. And then post-game, it was usually actually like a decent, somewhat catered meal or catered meal uh, in the Atlantic League. But in the Frontier League, you get peanut butter and jelly for pre-game. That's literally the only food that's set out there for you. And then after the game, you sometimes don't get fed. Uh, probably 30% of games you don't get fed, which is really honestly terrible. But sometimes they do feed you, and it'll be a pretty, I don't know, scrappy, not great dinner. That's kind of the reality of that low-level, independent baseball life in the Frontier League. As you go higher in leagues, like the American Association, where I play with Fargo, uh, you get taken care of a lot better. You also pay more in dues. And again, the Atlantic League, it's pretty expected that you have a legitimate meal after the game and pretty legitimate, like, kind of snacky food before the game. And most guys bring a meal. Like, I would eat a meal at 2 o'clock as soon as I got to the ballpark, uh, there was a Latin American restaurant right near the ballpark in Camden, where it was literally called the Latin American restaurant. But, you know, I'd grab chicken and rice and uh, fried plantains from there. All the Latin guys kind of turned us on to that. And I'd eat that, go out for BP, do all that stuff, come back, have some snacks, start the game, coffee, get me through the game, and then post-game meal. But so when I think of pb and J, I I just think of that first year. It was such a formative year for me. You know, I was just living my dream. I was so excited. My arm was also killing me. So I was struggling to get by both physically and financially, you know, $600 a month, five, five ten after taxes is nothing. Uh, even though I had an amazing host family, Denny and Dory Crawford here normal. And, and if without them putting a roof over my head for free without having no car payment, I had this old crappy Honda Civic and without Denny and Dory also providing me a lot of food in the, I mean, I had a pretty full refrigerator every day I came home to. Um, it would have been really tough to scrap by. I was a little underwater or even for that summer because I'm relatively frugal. But peanut butter and jelly, I ate one every day, if not two every day, either before pregame or before the game because there just like wasn't another option. You can't always run out to Subway and spend 7 bucks. That's like half of your day's meal money. You get $15 meal money in that league. And so peanut butter and jelly was just the reality. And so I ate probably – between 130 and 180 peanut butter and jellies that summer. I wouldn't say I got to two two a day, but some days I would have three. Some days I would have zero. I'd be too burned out. But on average, I probably had one and a half a day for an entire summer of 100 games uh, in the Frontier League. So peanut butter and jelly, whenever I look at it, it will always have that memory, that experience, that scrapping by. I'm living my dream, but I'm struggling and this is what it takes to keep me fed, to keep me in the game, to give me the energy to do what I need to do. And so peanut butter and jelly, to me, has a really profound story. And and in this episode of my vlog that I'm filming, I'm also tying in some of the minor league wage story, because, again, that's a big part of it. There's a lawsuit ongoing about minor league wages and, you know, you're basically paid six hundred to 1200 if you're in the frontier league and if you're in the affiliated mlb farm system you're going to make between 1100 and 2100 if you're a non-40-man roster player so if you never make it to the 40-man roster then you're going to make somewhere within that range depending on your level so triple a players make like 2100 um and then you know single a double a in the 17 15 down to 12 down to 1100 in rookie ball or short season so the the pay is to put it lightly nothing you only get paid during the season. No one gets paid in spring training, which is a travesty because you're there for four weeks, three weeks, and you're there at the field all day. You get meal money, but you don't get uh, paid. So it's a really huge drain, especially as guys get a little older. They have a wife, they have a child, they have a mortgage, they have things to take, you know, to send money back home that need, you know, bills need to be paid. So it's a really difficult financial situation. The minor league is almost untenable for a lot of people. And that yet you say, well, if you just took a million dollars and distributed it amongst all a team's players in the minor leagues, it would make all of them have a huge cost-of-living jump. If, you know, And that's like a nothing amount for a major league team to spend. They spend that on a risky prospect who was hurt for a couple of years, who now they think maybe can do something in the major leagues again. They'll give them a million dollars just to have them in spring training almost. So the way you look at money in the big leagues compared to the way they're so penny-pinching in the minor leagues, like they refuse to pay minor leaguers more money. Even when they make absolutely nothing, especially in the terms of MLB's, you know, their huge uh, TV deals and all this other stuff, it just doesn't seem to add up. And so there's been a lawsuit going on. Uh, I think it passed Congress. Basically, MLB or some others, they lobbied to sneak some legislative uh, lingo into a bill, basically saying that no matter how many hours a minor league baseball player works, he's only going to be paid for forty. And if you're only Working forty hours a week, then the twelve hundred dollars or eleven hundred dollars does actually add up to minimum wage. That was the lawsuit it was about. Basically, they were saying we're working seventy hours a week. When we make eleven hundred dollars a month, if you a- if you average it out for the hours, we're making below minimum wage standards. This is illegal. How can this be this be reasonable? So uh, there's still powers that be that are trying to keep minor leaguers down. And that's a big conversation. And uh, it, you know, in in the, the episode, I discuss not only what peanut butter and jelly means to me, not only how to make a good peanut butter and jelly, because I think a lot of people don't know. Uh, you might think you know, but I don't know if you're pro quality. Um, but also just the idea, like, should you be paid more, or is it more like an entrepreneurial kind of thing? Because As I've learned over the years, as an entrepreneur, there's lots and lots and lots of unpaid hours. You don't get paid to, you know, put up drywall in your new facility. When you're starting a new business, you don't get paid as a business owner for all the hours you put in after the clients have gone home. After you shuttered your doors for the day, you have to go home and prep for the next day. You have to respond to emails. You have to do all this stuff. You don't get paid for all those hours. And so employees have a different mindset. They want to be paid for every hour. If you're going to send me on a, you know, a learn a business trip, you have to pay me for all my time going out there, time in the hotel. It's all overtime or it's all just bonus time, whatever. But employees expect to be paid for any minute they're working for the business and rightly so. But for entrepreneurs, there is just an absolute mountain of unpaid work. And you do that work for the greater good, which is that one day this business will pay me off a thousandfold when it's successful and it'll make me more money than an employee could ever possibly make. And hopefully and this is typically the case with most entrepreneurs. It's bigger than that. It's a, it's a personal calling, it's a passion project and there's that, that emotional payoff as well. So, As an employee, you have a sort of finite track about how much you can earn and the potential of those earnings. But as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, if you put in enough grunt work and it takes off and the business idea takes flight and it reaches all the people that you hope to reach, you know, you could be Apple computer one day, which started in a garage or like Amazon, which started in a garage. All these places, just thousands and thousands of hours of unpaid work, you know, by Jeff Bezos, by uh, Steve Jobs, by entrepreneurs like that. Thousands of hours of unpaid work eventually manifested themselves in millions and millions of dollars. And so that to me is a similar journey on the minor league trail. Like I know, like I I didn't need to be paid to work out. You didn't need to pay me more and pay me for my hour in the gym, you know, my $12 an hour. So I'm collecting while I'm working out. I didn't need that. That's not to say it's wrong for other guys to want that because it's not, they have a right to feel that way. And it's not an, it's not an incorrect perspective on it. But uh for me personally, I just reframed it as look, this is a for a long-term payoff. Whether they pay me a little more or they don't, it doesn't really matter. I'll scrape by and uh if I can get where I want to go, it'll all be worth it either personally and emotionally or just financially also. Right, guys, play one and this is kind of the thing with the minor leagues is if you make it to the 40-man roster for even a day and if you make it to the 25-man roster like in the major leagues for even a day, your salary jumps from a month to like $10,000 a month, or if not more than that, like $14,000 a month. So there's a huge payoff to just get there for even just one day. So, and then your pay rate never drops back down. It's pretty fascinating the way the minor league pay system uh, works out. So anyway, stuff like that, there's stories connected to everything. Like when you talk about, like, I love macaroni and cheese, but I really just love craft macaroni and cheese, the shapes, you know, like specifically Spongebob. Because it's not so much about the macaroni and cheese, but because my sister and I, we watched Spongebob together is really like more like adults, not really like kids, but we watched Spongebob together at a time when he and she and I were sort of reconnecting and establishing a much better relationship than we had as kids. As kids, like I wasn't a very good big brother and my sister and I just like didn't mesh and talk very much. Like I was into sports and being kind of moody and testosterone-y and she was into arts and crafts and soft fluffy things, I guess. And, uh, you know, like sometimes that's how it is as kids. And then when we got to college, her and I reconnected, we'd come home, we'd watch SpongeBob SpongeBob, and macaroni and cheese eating specifically SpongeBob was just a symbol of my relationship with my sister and my love for her. And so that's just like another example of something that will eventually be an episode on my vlog, uh, whether it's baseball or otherwise, but I enjoy telling stories and trying to, share something that's meaningful that I've learned because and all the all the philosophy that I studied in college just can't be in vain, you know. So all that stuff is an extension of what's in my book. And what's in my book, I'd like to discuss just a little bit because when I retired a couple years ago and I don't know if I've really talked much about it since I actually did let go. I know I've had this podcast since 2000, god, 16 or 17. But the book was something I knew I had to write uh, really when I got my second elbow surgery. So in 2012, I sat there in Evansville's locker room for a couple of weeks awaiting my second surgery. And it was a miserable couple of weeks. I've been having a great season. It was my chance to get signed and get transferred into a major league farm system and like have my chance. But instead, I was in the bowels of Evansville's bossy field and just waiting for my time to go under the knife and then start all over again with two more years on the bench. So... I kind of knew like, this is a big moment in my life. I should start to write. And so I did. And so over those course or the course of that, like six weeks, three weeks leading up to surgery. And then the three weeks that I stayed on with the team after surgery until I went home, uh, I just wrote every day. I was on my laptop just writing about the experience and how I felt about it. My backstory that got me there, all that stuff. And when I went home, I had like 80,000 words, something like that, which is, plenty for like a 200 page book. And I thought like I had it, I was ready, but really my story wasn't ready. I sent it home, uh, to my, my, I have a family full of writers and my mom's friend, Lucy is a, uh, is also a great writer and a good editor. Um, well, I shouldn't say good. <laughs> She's a great writer and a great editor. I sent it home to them and they both edited it and they both basically said, uh, you need an ending number one and like some of it's good, but some of it's not. And as I look back on it, it was just kind of immature writing. It was, yeah, a lot of it was rehashing my story, but some of it was me explaining like who I had become. I become this more aggressive pitcher after my, my mental um, sort of collapse in Fargo where I was pitching terrible and had no confidence and I boosted myself up and I was on really like a big high of, of confidence and aggressiveness as a pitcher. And, A lot of that oozed out on paper in a really kind of immature way. Um, And as I looked back on it, I was like, yeah, they were very polite and just telling me, like, you're not there yet. Keep revising and wait for your story. But I didn't want to wait. I wanted to put it out there then, but I didn't. So fast forward, this is now seven years after that, almost seven years. And uh, I did go through rehab again. I went back into baseball again. And I grew up a lot. You know, I think everyone does every year. We grow up at least one in one year. But I grew up a lot, and my perspective has slowly evolved, I think, as all of ours do. But just in the way that I dealt with getting back into the game, I dealt with never getting to the place I thought I would get. You know, I always thought that my story had this magical ending, and it didn't. It just didn't. And it was really hard for me to reconcile that when I retired. Uh, when I finally let go in January of 17, which is just now two years ago, I um, I just didn't know what I was or who I was or what to think about it. It was a really tough time and uh, there was just a lot of grieving and coming to terms with that really difficult journey now coming to an end and coming to a very abrupt sort of whimpering end. You know, I didn't have any sort of like big triumph, like, you know, very few people get to go out like Derek Jeter did, but Uh, It was just very whimpering. I I had a great season. I had a good season in 2014. I had a great season in 2015, the best of my career, at the best level I'd ever played at. And everything was trending upwards. I mean, everything had always trended upwards except for my health concerns. But at that point in 2016, my shoulder was bugging me. My performance started to slip. I slowly put together that my shoulder was a big part of that performance slip. Um, And I just... I just pitched awful. And then when I got released, I drove home. My car broke down. I broke up with my girlfriend. It was just a rough summer. And it was a rough six months during the summer. It was a rough six months rehab- rehabbing after that summer. And then it was a rough year coming to terms with all of that stuff. I didn't make it. I went out um, not on my own terms for sure. I had to come to terms with quitting, which I didn't know how how to do that really. Uh, and that story is also told in here. Um, because I had never identified myself as a quitter, I was a guy that always kept going. I came back from two of those surgeries. I always had elbow problems. I just gritted through much, so much pain. like how could I just say that i don't want to play anymore that how can I do that now it wasn't that I just didn't want to play uh, I physically couldn't i couldn't barely break eighty as I was prepping for the season. I finally just knew that I just had I just couldn't um but on top of that, I'd been pain so much that year in my shoulder, like every time I threw ball, I was miserable. It was just a situation where I just didn't want to play baseball. I just didn't want to do it irregardless of whether I could physically do it. And, uh, and that was just tough because again, like the eight year old kid who, you know, always wanted to play, always wanted five more minutes on the field. He just didn't want to do it anymore. And it's, it's weird to hear yourself utter those words. Um, but I did. And so I started writing the book shortly after. I sent my parents a letter. I explained to them that, you know, I'm retiring. Thank you for everything that we've been through, you know, for your support. The way my parents were were, was just absolutely huge into helping me get through all the hard times. If I had been playing because I was pushed to play, because, you know, I I didn't want to let them down, because, uh, you know, my dad, used to be a great player and just like he thought I could be better than him or I had a little bit of his shoes. Like I never had any of that. I just had play because you want to, you know, and they supported me whether I played terrible or I played great. So it was always completely because my personal motivation allowed me to play. If I wanted to play, I'd play. And it was just very free to, you know, grow up as an athlete that way. So – I wrote them a letter and I said, thank you for all of that. And at that point I decided that, well, if, uh, I don't know how to tell this 22 year long story, like that's just a really long story. So how do I tell in a meaningful, not boring, not boring way, how I grew up in baseball and how my journey was unique and some of the things that people should understand about what it's like to sort of give yourself to a sport. And so with that letter, I decided that a format of letters would do that. I decided that I could write a letter to a kid that I worked with and explain one of the really hard days that I had and and what the moral was and how it applied to them. I could explain to one of my former coaches how I'd grown up from a conflict on the bus. You know, I could explain to, um, you know, my business partner, there's a letter to him, you know, what he did for me to help me continue to to play and not feel guilty about leaving the business and all that stuff so the book is a is a collection of of letters all assembled into a chronological order um all written to someone who is either contextually described in the book or it's relevant to them um they're sort of characters in this just like anyone else and so that's what dear baseball gods is this is actually a proof copy which it's super exciting to see one of these in the flesh because I wanted to edit but as soon as I got this, uh, we made changes to the cover, we made changes. Uh, I'm just crushing editing right now, trying to get through a fourth draft to make it a lot better than it currently is and then it's just getting pushed out the net uh, out the nest no matter what. So it's a it's a project for me to get closure more than anything else, but I uh, I really didn't hold anything back so it's going to be probably one of the most honest books. Um, that you'll ever read. And I know there's a lot of really great memoirs and, and, and novels that are that dig deep into, you know, human connection and the way we grow up and some of the ways we respond to tough times. But I know that um, that's all in there. And I really, uh, I didn't sugarcoat anything. But one thing I did make sure to do was uh, make it appropriate for any age. So there's Um, There might be like six curse words in there now, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to edit all of them out. So there won't be a single one in the book. There's no adult situations. There's nothing inappropriate. There's just like none of that. That wasn't the point of it. The point is that if an eight-year-old wants to read it, they can read it. And if uh, any person wants to give me their attention, they can without worry that it'll be offensive in any way. There's tons of ballpark humor. There's tons of clubhouse situations. There's you know, guys chase women out there playing, but none of that's in the book. That's just not what it's about. So there's some heated moments, um, some heated conversations where sometimes a a curse word makes the most sense for the, for the situation. But, um, I worked really hard to edit down to like pretty much only essentials. And really, I don't know that any of them are essential. So it might be a hundred percent clean when it's, uh, when it's done editing, but even then it's a uh, 100% appropriate for any age. So that was a really big sticking point for me. I don't want anyone to think that if they give this to their son or their daughter, cause it's not just for baseball, it's for any athletes, for any person um, that it's, they don't have to worry about what they're gonna read if they haven't read through it yet themselves. So that's sort of been, what's been going on with me. The target release date is April 15th um, and with all projects, at some point like I said earlier you'd have to sort of like shove it out the nest and let it fly. And I've been through four drafts. This will sort of be like draft 4.5 that I'm finishing now. Uh then getting more copy editing done, I'm going to do the audiobook. So I'll have a Kindle version, a hard a, a paperback version, maybe a hard copy, a hardback version. And uh also an audiobook version because obviously I listen to audiobooks all the time and so I feel like I'd be hypocritical if I didn't have an audiobook of my own book. I do think it's going to be absolutely terrible to narrate my own audiobook, but with all the podcasting I've done and all the audio engineering that I know how to do now, uh, which is actually pretty minimal, but I can do the foundational stuff. Um, it makes sense for me to do it and do it well. It's hence the new, this pretty new mic, uh, and you know, some of the, uh, the good audio software that we have and all that stuff. So, I'm looking forward to doing the audiobook, even though I think it's gonna be really difficult to read all the words without screwing them up. I don't know how people do that because there's like so many words in there. There's like a 100, uh, the current, the current manuscript is at 113,000, but I've deleted four chapters. I haven't, uh, I'm not sure what the updated count is, but it's probably gonna be down to like 95 to 105,000 words. And again, that's like twenty two. think it's 22 or 25 letters slash chapters, whatever you want to call it. So that's uh, that's in a nutshell what this podcast was always supposed to be about. It's in a nutshell what the vlog on YouTube is about. So if you haven't checked that out, I'd really appreciate you checking it out, even if you consider just a 12-minute favor to me. And if you ever have any feedback about it, I'd love to hear your feedback because I'm trying actively to be better at video every time I put out a video. And I've mentioned that numerous times in my email list. And if you want to sign up for my email list, you can do so in the description of the podcast. And you can also do so in the description of my YouTube videos. So if you want to sign up my email list, they're pretty non spammy. Every once in a while, I try to sell an online course or something to you. So bear with me when that happens. I only sell stuff that I've made and I believe in, but at the same time, 50 weeks out of the year, you're just going to get an update of a video, of a book, of an article that I read that I think would be relevant to you that you should check out. So I think it's valuable. I get good feedback on my email list. I send it out to 2,000 plus people every week, and only like four people unsubscribe, which I think is pretty good every time I send it out. So 0.02%. Um, so I appreciate that. And 30 something percent of you click on it and open it up. So thank you for if you are on my email list. And if you already get those, and if not, again, you can subscribe, uh, in the description of any of the, the forms in which you're listening to this podcast, but it's been a really fun 2018 and not in the sense that it was easy, but in the sense that I learned a ton of new stuff. Uh, I spent a lot of money. So if you bought an online course from me, just know that I spent all of that money back on audio or video equipment to make better videos. So if you did, buy something from me this year and you are learning from me from one of my courses. Number one, thank you. But number two, just know that the the GoPro that you're watching this video on right now and the new mic and the mic that's on the GoPro for backup in case this, uh, my computer crashes while it's recording right now. Um, all that was purchased with your support through my courses, my t-shirts, all that stuff. So I really do appreciate it because I'm not just like stuffing in my pocket and running down in the mall. I'm trying to make better content And you've, I'm sure seen that as my YouTube videos are significantly better looking. They're significantly better sounding than they were just three, three months ago, um, to the point where I have to start redoing a lot of old stuff to make it better. So, and that's just the progression with everything. You know, if you're a carpenter, you learn new things as you go and your old projects that you were real proud of back in the day become kind of ugly by comparison, but that's, again, that's just the creative process. And and one of the things that's been interesting about the book writing process and the video process and the audio process, just how much more comfortable you get with it over time. You know, the amount of ums I would say in, a, in one of my first podcasts, I mean, it was just obnoxious going back and looking at them. And I still now, as I'll record a video, I'll, I'll say like, cause I'm around kids a lot and I use kid lingo, you know, it's you, your your language always sort of adapts to your audience, but. You know, I'm talking to a kid and suddenly I'm on camera. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, you just do it like this. And then like, I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes it's just like, and I'm like, ah, I got to stop doing that. But with all this stuff, it's just practice like anything else. And the interesting thing about writing and about this book is that those 80,000 words of drivel from Evansville in 2012 that my mom and her friend politely edited for me and gave me feedback on, they were practice. They were practice for this book. And this book is not practice for something in 10 years. This book is what it is. But in 10 years, I hope I'm a significantly better writer than I am today. I'm already working on my third book and my fourth book. Um, I'm about 20% into one of them, which is sort of the next chapter in my life after this. And I'm about 20% into another one, which is a mental training book in which I'm layering my story with mental training with things I've learned and things I've, I've read from you know, the ancient ways of the samurai and sports psychology and all that stuff. So it sort of steps you through it following my journey in mental training, along with a lot of the principles and actionable things that you can do with mental training and just ways to build confidence, not just for sports, but for for everyday life. So, but the thing is, at some point, I became, in my mind, a writer. And whether I am or I'm not, it's sort of more up to you to describe or up to you to decide than me. But in high school, I just wrote papers and usually got good grades on them. When I had to write a paper, it was like, eh, no big deal. Everyone else is complaining. Oh, three pages, like 2,000 words, like what? And I was like, oh, okay. And I usually, if I had a three to five page paper, I would turn in two and a half pages or sometimes two pages, which two pages is like egregiously below the the minimum that range, like a whole page below three to five pages. And I still got B's or A's, usually A's. And teachers almost never called me out about it because I just wrote in a more dense sort of like concise manner where I just if I did the assignment in two pages, it was done and I turned it in and I I didn't think twice about it. And uh, I think I still got good grades and didn't really get debited any points because I did the assignment as it was supposed to be done. Whereas in college, I read an entrepreneurship class as a senior. And I was, I was going to compile all four of our, uh, sort of like ideas into a paper. So everyone wrote a, basically a one or two page paper, gave it to me. And then I was going to compile it into the group's paper. So it was in one voice. And it's just, uh, they didn't say a lot in their one to two pages. You know, there was a lot of words, but there wasn't a lot of value. There wasn't a lot of like action. There wasn't a lot of, uh, there wasn't a lot of meaning in the sentences. There's lots of filler between small amount of meaning between a lot more filler. And at some point along the line from high school into college, and then into pro baseball, I started to start to identify myself as a writer. And in 2008, I got pushed to blogging or yeah, to blogging, not vlogging, blogging by a training mentor named Nick Tumanello. Nick, uh, in 2008 and nine, I interned for him. I didn't have a I didn't get any college credit for it. I just wanted to learn more about fitness and training. So I found him. He was a a writer on the internet on fitness. I found him. I reached out to him. He was in Baltimore. And I just went over his his shop a couple days a week for two to four hours. And I cleaned his floors while he let me kind of train his clients a little bit here and there and learn from him and just shadow and watch. And uh, I helped him and he helped me. One of the things he did earlier was he said, you need, you need to start a blog. I said, why? He said, because it's the future. He's like, it's 2008. People are starting to write on the internet a lot more. I'm starting to do it. You need to start doing it to establish yourself as an expert on the web. So I said, okay, I don't know who's going to listen to me. I'm a 22 year old kid, but okay, I will. And so I did. And I felt extremely anxious about it and vulnerable about it. Cause like I was a 22 year old with a 6.18 ERA in college. That was my college numbers. And I know that I'm pretty sure that was right. Uh, cause I was just regurgitating in my book, but that's not a good, like, why would you listen to this guy? Like, that's not good. We weren't even a good conference, but nonetheless, I knew a lot about strength training. I'd, I'd, I'd mentored for him or been mentored by him. I'd read a ton of textbooks and watched everything on the web. I could find and read everything on the web. I could find. I was a, I was all over my, my strength coach, hounding him for books and for knowledge. And I was a, a gym rat. So, I did know a lot about strength training as a 22 year old. So I started writing and I just wrote about what I knew. I wrote about pull-ups. I wrote about push up form. I wrote about rotator cuff exercises for baseball players. I just started to write and I started to slowly, but surely get some people to watch it or to read it. And you know, as those reads grow, the chance that someone will leave a comment will grow and, I, there was a pivotal moment for me because I didn't know who was out there on the web. Every time I wrote something, I was like, oh, I was thinking about how many people might respond in a negative way to me. It's like, oh, he might, they might attack this part, or this part. Or they might just like leave a nasty comment. Like this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. This guy's had an elbow injury. Like, why would you want to listen to it? And the people did leave comments like that. But I remember there was a guy from college on my team named Bo and Bo was an upperclassman. He was two years older than I was. And Bo was always like, picking on the freshmen. And, uh, if anything was ever like everyone was ever getting pranked or just like picked on, Bo was somewhere around laughing about it. And at the time as a freshman sophomore, I perceived him as like that cackling, like hyena head over there that was sort of like the bully, the enemy. But as I got older, I started to realize that he, he wasn't really, he was just like, that's just like part of the, the pecking order. And he never did anything really malicious. He would just like stir the pot a little bit and just like laugh when guys would get flustered about it, like myself included. And after I graduated, um, I hadn't heard from Bo again. I didn't dislike Bo. Again, I grew up and I started to realize that he wasn't really the enemy. He was just like any other upper, upperclassman. Like you just stir the pot sometimes. But one day, like a couple years after starting my blog, I get a comment from Bo. I mean, it was a text message. I can't remember which it was, but it was just like, Hey man, like I read your blog. I thought it was great. Like keep doing what you're doing. And it just like blew me away because in my mind, he was a guy who always like raised an eye at me. Uh, and was like, sort of like, again, like the guy who was around when I was getting picked on, or it was maybe like picking on me a little bit. But as again, as I grew up and started to understand how to respond to people better and how to understand people better he was never like my enemy. He was always watching and just like, he knew I was a hard worker and a good kid and like a good ball player and whatever. And so a couple years later, as we both started to grow up, um, he left that positive comment. And I'm like, if Bo thinks what I'm doing is good, if Bo who would be like the number one person to leave a, like a, a negative comment, if he would leave a positive one, then like I'm gold. And it was a really big moment where I just felt super encouraged to keep going that, if he thought I was doing something beneficial for the baseball community, then hundred percent I was. So at that point I like continued to write and I just like started at some point writing on the bus and like sort of almost journaling on my laptop. I never had a journal, but sort of journaling on my laptop, recording some of these things. I started my newsletter in 2012, I think, which was called you're my boy blue. And that was an opt in uh, newsletter where my family or friends could opt in and then they'd get an email from me each week and I would just update them on how I was doing because everyone texting me constantly, uh, is tough to respond to effectively, um, without being short, especially if I just had a bad game, I don't really want to respond too much. So I would just make sure I send out one or more updates per week via email. I'd include a bunch of photos, give them a rundown, be kind of honest about what was going on. And, uh, you know, I had, I think over, over a hundred people on that email list. And it was a fun little endeavor. And, uh, between that and just like sort of journaling on my laptop on bus rides, at some point I started thinking I could write a book. And then in 2013, I wrote pitching isn't complicated, which was a summer camp pitching manual. We are going to do summer camps at Warbird Academy for the first time. And I decided we need a pitching manual or I need a, I need to outline all my thoughts for our pitching instructors that we were going to hire to do this camp and i started to make i made like 12, you know, outline major points and then i started making subpoints and then i realized that a book is just 12 to 20 chapters, 10 pages a chapter becomes a book. and i'm like i could write 10 pages on pitch calling, i could write 10 pages on mechanics, i could write 10 pages on pitching drills, i could write 10 pages on conditioning, i could write 10 pitch, pages on the changeup and the curveball and and suddenly i had a book eight, eight or 12 weeks later, something like that. It was done, went through revision, went through another draft, Lucas formatted and edited for me, added photos. We did a photo shoot ourselves and he put the whole thing together, made the cover. And suddenly it was a book like eight months later. And so it was a situation where out of nowhere, never aspired to be a writer, never aspired to do any of that stuff. I just over time became it from the kid that, you know, was good at writing papers and knew that writing came easy to him, uh, who accepted criticism like constructively from my teachers when they'd mark up my papers in red, I didn't throw my hands up. I just asked, like, what does that mean? Like, what do you mean by this? Like, why did you scratch that out? Like, what should I have, you know, how should I reworded that? Um, I was always cognizant of sentence formation, all that stuff. And then in philosophy classes in college, you learn how to structure your arguments better. You learn what's superfluous, what's not, You know, what sentences have meaning and which ones don't. And how to delete stuff that doesn't have any value to your overall conclusion or the premise or the premises that lead to a conclusion. Like, what are you actually trying to convince people of? And does this sentence actually build on it? And if not, just delete it. And of course, like writing a memoir, writing fiction, uh, something like that, like you can have more sentences that include flowery descriptions and things that make the scene expand beyond just like description, you know, descriptive facts and an expository, you know, it was sunny out, but you know, at some point, just like in baseball, at some point I became a decent player. I can't pinpoint the time and date or what exactly caused it, but you do the same stuff day in day out. You continue to put yourself out there and practice and practice and practice. At some point you just look back and like, wait, how did I get here? And that's been the case with tons of the kids that we work with. That's been the case. It was with the case of myself as a player. It was this case uh, of myself as a writer. And it's also becoming the case with myself as a filmmaker. If you call my vlogs films or whatever it is, I don't have a title for that. But it's, it's a fascinating thing to watch. And when I talk to kids and I talk to other people, I just want to encourage them to continue to go with whatever they like doing and just to keep putting in the time and to play the long game. Because if it's anything that I played, it's the long game. You know, the podcast is almost two years old, if not more so. I can't remember if it's two or three years now. Um, the videos, I'm plugging along the the book. I just plugged along, and it's an arduous, arduous process. Editing is worse than writing, and it's tough to know when to stop. It's tough to know when it's right and when it's not. It's tough to know what to include. But the video actually has helped me a ton, in getting the story in the right place, because as I've created these vlogs, which are again, just some of the stories are in here. Um, I, I, every story that's in the book will eventually also be a video blog, a video vlog. Um, but some of the video vlogs are not in the book. So as I've had to make those in real life, I have to think, okay, well, how would I tell that story? And if I was going to tell that story in video, how could I show it better than just simply talking to a camera and telling you what happened? How, where could I go? to better help an audience member like see what I saw or like feel what I felt. How could I take this footage and make it better with a sound effect or some background music or with a a photo splashed on top or text splashed on top or a transition or something. It really makes you think creatively. um, How could I improve the story as I bring it to life? And then as I've been doing that with video, it's made my brain work better folding and unfolding and, Sort of, you know, molding the story in writing as well. So, like, all the sort of like creative avenues have been sort of flowing together and have helped get this to where it needs to be. So, um, this wasn't a long-winded pitch for my book. You're either going to buy and read my book or you're not. Um, and if you believe in me and and my story, then maybe you will, and maybe you won't. It doesn't matter. What really matters is that I didn't do everything that i did for no reason i went through a lot of really hard times in baseball i went through a lot of hard times as a business owner um just to get to a point where i like take that to the grave like no and there's so many of us that have a really profoundly interesting story and then it really just comes down to how well do we tell it you know like I'm in the grand scheme of things, a nobody. Most of us are in the grand scheme of things, the same as everyone else I am too. But I could take my same story and I can cut out all the parts that don't add value and I can shape the parts that are valuable and without making any of it up without, you know, while still keeping it a hundred percent, what actually happened, I can just make it into a viable, interesting, impactful thing. And that's something that I believe I can do that with video or with my book and with future things that I create. Um, Because when you watch TV and you watch movies, some of the most impactful, profound movies that we've ever watched, the story isn't that profound. It's just the way that it's told. It's the way that they develop the characters. It's the way they describe the scene or they show the scene. So um, just like anything else, and I explain this to my softball people on my softball email list a couple weeks ago because I didn't have a piece of content to give them. I didn't have a video or an article. I basically just explained that. And this is how I'm going to end today's podcast. When you come to the realization that no one is special, then you can set yourself free to do anything that you want. The people that are on TV. Sure. Like Kevin Durant, super athletic dude. Couldn't be Kevin Durant. However, the vast majority of people who are successful, whether it's CEO of a business or a famous writer, or a famous uh, filmmaker, director, you know, musician, whatever, they all are the same as us. They all had to put in tremendous amount of time to slowly getting better at their craft, just like I was unwittingly writing and writing and writing, and to one day become a writer. I was putting in all this time doing pitching drills in my basement in front of a mirror to one day become a good pitcher. And I was consciously trying to be that. But by virtue of putting in enough time and reevaluating what I was doing and continuing to make smart decisions to steer me a little bit straighter towards my long-term destination I got where I wanted to go and so when I see all these people doing things that I want to do like a famous speaker famous writer you know like famous youtuber there's no there's not one legitimate reason I couldn't do any single one of those things not one not one. They didn't have some like crazy big break. They didn't have some um, some miraculous story like they were on they were on a, a, a ship that sank in the Atlantic and they were on a rowboat and they would like fend off sharks with a with a bottle opener and that's why that their YouTube channel is huge or that's why they're a world famous speaker. It's not like that. There are people that have very mediocre stories that are great at telling it. There are people that have very average journeys in in a sport or in business or whatever that they just they stayed the course for so long and they just continue to get better at their job. And they continue to put in the, the unpaid quiet work to keep climbing the ladder, to keep doing impressive things, to keep furthering themselves in their own career. So if you look at the vast majority of people, it's not that they had some amazing, crazy leg up that got them where they wanted to go. They are all the same as me. They're the same as you. They're the same as everyone else. And so when I think, The life that I want to live somewhere in the future, what is it? And I know what that is. Can I achieve that? The answer is without a doubt, yes. And the answer to how I achieve that is by continuously getting better at the things that I do, getting better at my writing, writing more, creating more videos, putting it out there in an honest way, which is the reason for this podcast this week. I didn't have a guest, and I just don't want to talk about pitching so much. I really just want to talk about the underlying things that ultimately made me good at pitching and that made me a decent coach and that made me a decent writer, which is the output for everybody. So if you want to know how one day you're going to get where you want to go, whether it's college baseball or college softball or pro whatever, or become the CEO or quit your job that you fricking hate, it's going to be the silent unpaid work and the knowledge that no one who does the things that you want to do is any different than you. It's just that they put in the work and they started early and they played the long game and they kept going. So thank you for being a part of mine. This is sort of my like 2018 wrap up. I know it's three weeks into January, but I've got a great 2019 ahead of me. I hope you have a great 2019 ahead of you. There's a lot of new things that are happening. I've got some great guests. I'm super excited for my book to come out and then to start on the next one. So Thank you for being a listener of the Dear Baseball God's podcast. I hope this new mic has made this a more, the most pleasant listening experience of the show to date. And I will see you here next week.